Hey, good morning, faith family. If you have a Bible, would you please turn to Revelation chapter 11, uh, continuing in our series through the book of Revelation uh, called Victorious. We've been uh, approaching this book a little different, uh, as you may have noticed, than a lot of people do. A lot of people will use the book of Revelation to try to predict the end time, and uh, I'm suggesting that that's not what the book is ultimately about. Uh, Yes, it does speak of end time things, but it's really meant to encourage us daily in our faith. That's certainly how the letter would have been received to those who originally uh, would have read it. And so uh, this is a lot more practical, uh, I hope. I hope it's encouraging you and your faith, and uh, you're really seeing the relevance of the book of Revelation. Now, uh, it is a complicated book, and there are some things that you have to remember uh, in order to be able to understand it. For instance, uh, the book is not in chronological order. Uh, Apocalyptic genre typically uh, is not. It's more of a cyclical approach. That is, it's going to tell you the same story over and over again from different perspectives. And that's a very common thing with this kind of literature. A second thing that's very common with uh, a literature like Revelation is it's very symbolic. Very symbolic. You've got uh, lions that appear like lambs and horsemen that gallop through creation and locusts that look like horses and four living creatures with the face of an ox and uh, a lion and a, a man and all. The, it's just weird. It's just really, really weird because most of us are used to watching documentaries and now we're watching Lord of the Rings. You know what I mean? There's orgs and wizards, and it's just things that we're not used to because it's a different kind of literature. Uh, It also pulls a lot of imagery from the Old Testament. In fact, most of the book of Revelation is pulling uh, Old Testament imagery, things like the Ancient of Days, eating of a scroll, uh, the four horsemen, things like that. Uh, John's readers would have understood that symbolism very much so. And then here's the big thing for us is that the book of Revelation is relevant. And you need to be very, very careful of anybody that teaches the book of Revelation and doesn't show its application to real-life Christianity. Um, These people to whom this letter was written, they were real people that had real families, suffering, real suffering and tribulation, uh, and they read this letter and were encouraged by it. And so should we be as well. And so this book is very relevant to our Christian life. And what we're going to look at in this next section, uh, known as the seven trumpets, it goes from chapter 8 to chapter 11, is going to be very applicable uh, to our uh, daily life. And I trust that you'll be encouraged. You ready to go? If you're able to stand, please do so. We're going to start at the end of this section with the last trumpet here in verse or chapter 11, verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for the destroying of the destroyers of earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. 
Would you pray with me? Let's ask God to talk to us this morning through His Word. God, thank You for this time to be together. What a great time of of worship and fellowship that we get to enjoy as a faith family together. And then we set aside this time uh, to proclaim Your Word. Not to listen to a man talk, but to hear from You. So God, help me. Uh, Be faithful to your word. May may we speak truth today that would encourage your people to persevere in their faith. And I pray it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. It was a day they had anticipated for a long time. They were all gathered there in their gowns, tassels hanging from their caps. Families were all seated together, uh, anticipating a lot of celebration to follow Uh, The only thing left was the final commencement address. The occasion was the 2005 graduating ceremony uh, of Stanford University. And the speaker on that particular day was the late Steve Jobs, uh, CEO and founder of Apple. And the focus of his speech was rather interesting. He was trying to motivate uh, those graduating students to not waste their life, uh, to live with a sense of courage, to live with a sense of, uh, of uh, purpose, and to not let failure be the end, which seemed very applicable. But he said, in order for you to do that, you've got to believe some things. Like, for instance, you have to believe that the dots of your life will eventually connect. You have to believe that your story is a part of a larger story. And then he gave an example of that, one that was rather interesting for a graduation speech. He said, I dropped out of college. That's encouraging, right? And he said, when I dropped out of college, I actually kept going to certain classes, not because I had to, but just because I wanted to. And one of the classes that I went to was a calligraphy class. A class that he said, quote, had no practical relevance to his life. He just thought it was cool. And then 10 years later, he discovered how that class was significant in the development of the first Mac. In other words, his story was saying that all the dots eventually connected. And then he went on to say this. That's really interesting. Remembering that I will be dead soon has been the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big decisions of life. He went on to say that remembering that you're going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. What's he saying? He's talking about the idea that if you're going to live with courage, if you're going to live with purpose, if you're not going to let failure be the end, then you've got to live with some beliefs like the dots will eventually connect and death neutralizes everything. What is he doing? Besides sounding a lot like Coeleth in the book of Ecclesiastes, but that's a whole different thing. Faith family, what he's trying to do is to get those students to frame their life in light of their future. 
He's saying that if you live like death is an inescapable reality in the future, if you live like the dots are eventually going to connect in the future, then you can live with courage now. You don't have to be afraid now. Now, whatever you think of Steve Jobs and whatever you think of that advice, listen, faith family, everybody does that. Everybody in this room frames their life with something You have certain things that shape your perspective on how you view your life. For some of you, you frame your life based on your financial situation, and it consumes what you do, and it consumes how you live. It frames your life. Some of you, it's about the opinions of other people, and it consumes the decisions you make and, and the way you think about your life right now. Uh, for others of you, it's, it's whether or not you're successful or, or unsuccessful, and that frames the way you approach your life. It affects the decisions that you make. For some of you parents, it's how your kids are going to grow up and what their future will be, and that frames every decision you make in the moment. Everybody does this. Hey, can I, what do you frame your life with? What is it that shapes your perspective? Because here's why this idea is so important. It's critically important. Steve Jobs is right and he's wrong, as I'm about to show you in just a minute. But here's, here's the, what, the reason why it's a good thing for us to think about is notice this on the screen. How you frame your life significantly impacts how you live your life. How you frame your life significantly impacts how you live your life. Steve Jobs is right when it comes to that. But I got better news than Steve Jobs has. You see, the good news of the gospel means this. That unlike what Steve Jobs is saying, we don't have to frame our life with the reality of death. We get to frame our life because of Jesus with the reality of eternity. Somebody, somebody say, preach, preacher. Come on now. That's a lot better news than what Steve Jobs has to offer, amen? That there's actually a greater reality in our future that frames our life now. And that means that we have more hope and more courage and more confidence and more ability to persevere tribulation. Why? Look at me. Because no matter how many losses you face right now, victory is guaranteed in the end. It changes everything. That is the fundamental message of the book of Revelation. It's what it's telling you over and over and over again through different perspectives and symbols. I've told you that the book of Revelation is written to Christians that are taking it on the chin because of their faith. This isn't hypothetical. This isn't end times. This isn't microchips in the wrist or tattoos on the forehead. This is real life tribulation. And what's coming to them through this letter is this. You don't have to frame your life based on the tribulation of your circumstances. You got to frame your life based on the triumph of Christ. And isn't it true, and some of you relate to this, that when you're going through real suffering and real tribulation, that you frame your life based on the circumstances you're in? It impacts everything you see and everything you do and the decisions that you make. 
What good news the Gospel gives to say that you can actually frame your life not with the circumstances of tribulation, but with the triumph of Jesus Christ. And it absolutely changes everything. And it's repeated throughout the book. For instance, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, right after John talks about his tribulation, he says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And he was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And guess what? I have the keys of death and Hades. Chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. But... Be faithful unto death, because I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Why? Behold, the Lamb of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Watch. They will hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. Why? Because the Lamb in the midst of the throne is going to be their shepherd, and he's going going to guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Sorry, Steve Jobs, I'm going to frame my life based on that. Oh, golf clap? Really? Come on. Are you... I mean, this like really is the good news of the gospel. And do you see how that's repeated over and over again? Tribulation, triumph. Tribulation, triumph. Tribulation, triumph, over and over again. Why? Because you've got to frame your life with the good news of the victorious Christ. The good news of the book of Revelation is this. You don't have to live like you're dying. I know it's a country song. (laughs) You, listen, can live like you're going to live. You know why? Because you're going to live forever. Live not like you're dying, Steve Jobs. Live like you're going to live because you're going to live forever. That totally changes your now and how you live in the present. And that's what we see in these eight or these seven trumpets in chapters eight through eleven. Now keep in mind that this section is full of symbolism. In fact, the book gets more and more weird as you go. <laughs> Chapter eight, you got hail and fire mixed with blood, and trees and grass burned up and mountains thrown into the sea. Chapter nine, you got a star that falls from heaven and opens a bottomless pit, and locusts appear and torment people and engage in battle. Chapter 10, you got an angel that gives John a scroll and he tells him to eat it. And he does. And it tastes good, but it makes his stomach sick, kind of like a, you got two witnesses. That's how I interpret that verse. You got two witnesses that are killed by a beast 
and everyone is glad that they're killed, and then they just get up. And all of this is happening at the sound of seven trumpets. And by the time you get to the end, you're like, what in the world is all of this about? It's just weird. It's crazy. It's stuff that just doesn't make a lot of sense to my everyday life. And you better believe it does. It really does. So, so stay with me for just a minute, okay? I promised you I was going to try to make this simple for us. If you'll just step back, the imagery in this section's not new. I've told you that the book of Revelation actually pulls a lot from the Old Testament. And this imagery that you're going to see here is actually something that comes from two very common Old Testament stories. Number one is the plagues of Egypt. You remember that story for some of you in vacation Bible school? The plagues that were poured out on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, uh, stuff like hail and fire and darkness and locusts. In fact, the first five trumpets here in Revelation parallel the first five plagues. And what was the point of the story of the Exodus? Hang with me. God pours out His judgment on the world, Egypt, tribulation. God saves His people through that tribulation and is going to lead them to a glorious future, the promised land. Right? You with me? Everybody with me? Say yes. yes. The second story behind this is the battle of Jericho. You remember that story? That They blew trumpets for how many days? I was going to say, just guess seven and you're probably right. How many? Seven? And you're, yeah, it's true. It's all over the book of Revelation. But the trumpets blow for seven days, and on the seventh day, they blew the trumpet seven times. And of course, what was the point of that story? God is warning judgment. God leads His people through this time of judgment and into the promised land, a glorious future. It's the same narrative, if you will, if you will and the same stories being told now with these seven trumpets. Let's look at it quickly. By quickly, I mean for the next couple hours. Number one, <laughs> God's judgment upon the world. That's what you see in the first six trumpets. God's judgment upon the world. In these first six trumpets, you're going to see tribulation throughout the world, throughout the created order, just like you did in the seven seals. And it's going to take two primary forms. Number one is you're going to see creation in crisis. Uh, you're going to see a chaotic world. And then you're going to see sin and evil that runs rampant in the world. How many of you still see those things today? Yeah, you see a creation in chaos, and you see evil and sin all over the world. Let me show you these from the text. Now, don't be thrown off by the apocalyptic language. Again, this is highly symbolic. But look at what it says. Verse uh, 15, of, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse... I'll get there. 6, chapter 8, verse 6. This is the creation in chaos. Now the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the grass 
A green grass was burned up. You got the second angel blows a trumpet. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures of the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. A third angel, verse 10, blows a trumpet. A great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the spring of waters. The name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it was bitter. Fourth angel blew his trumpet. A third of the sun was struck, the moon, the stars. A third of their light might be darkened. A third of the day might be kept from shining. And likewise, a third of the night. This is highly symbolic language that is speaking to a creation. In fact, it's a holistic view of creation and chaos. You've got land and sea and rivers and the heavens or the skies, and this is happening all around us. Now, I'm not denying that it's not true in the end times, but it's true for all time. In fact, this has been true ever since the fall, ever since uh, the Garden of Eden. Creation has been longing, listen, Creation has been longing for someone with the authority to say, peace be still. Do you know anyone like that? Do you know anyone who's ever done that before? That's what Romans 8 is called. Creation is longing for redemption. It is waiting for that final day of restoration. And the reason that you see these things around you, like the blowing of a trumpet, is to get you to repent and turn to God. Look at one example in Luke chapter 13, verse 4, where Jesus says, Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Everybody look right here for just a moment. When you observe a creation in crisis, it ought to make one thing clear. Are you ready? You can't put your hope in anything that's of this world. You can't put your hope in anything that is of this world because this world is in chaos. You are one, you know this. You're one hurricane away. You are one disease away. You are one catastrophe away from life fading away. That is life in this fallen world, is it not? Do you not see it all around you? That's what in this symbolic language it's describing. That as you look throughout history, and certainly in the end as well, but throughout history you're seeing creation longing for a new day. And creation serves like the blowing of a trumpet to say, turn from your sin and trust in God alone. Natural disasters ought to serve as a trumpet warning to put your trust in God, not anything of this world. Amen? Amen. Now notice the second way you see this judgment or this tribulation is through uh, sin and evil that runs throughout the world. Now this is symbolically uh, illustrated at beginning in, in chapter 9. The fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth, was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the shaft, and then the smoke came locust on earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. 
heads, that is unbelievers. And they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. And they will long to die, but death will flee from them. This is symbolic of uh, evil in the world. Um, Let me tell you what this symbolism means. For instance, you've got a star, Satan, falls from the sky, leaves his position of authority, opens up a pit, that is, activates evil. Locusts are then prepared for war, that is, demonic activity, where people are tormented. Lives are ruined, and there is the misery of sin. (laughs) Faith family, that's not new. That's been happening ever since the fall. Uh, hey, come here for just a minute. You do believe in spiritual warfare. You do believe in demonic activity. You do believe that there are powers and principalities that are all around us of which our eyes cannot see. That's real. There is a real spiritual warfare. How many of you look around the world and you just say, why is there so much evil? And everybody deep down knows it ought not be this way. Even people that steal and are fine with that are only fine with that until someone steals from them. And then all of a sudden, it's like, you ought not live that way. Everybody understands that, that there are things that are wrong and things that are evil and that it ought not be this way, and yet people keep living this way, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons or idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. In other other words, if you look around the world, what you see is people keep living like there is no God. Warning after warning after warning. Trumpet call after trumpet call. Stop and look at creation. You know this is not how it's supposed to be. Stop and look at the evil in the world. You know that's not how it's supposed to be. What are these things? They're trumpet calls to say, turn to God. Turn to God. You can't find your answer in a world that's passing away, and yet people keep moving right on forward, regardless of the consequences. Like an Easter Sunday of 2013 near the North Carolina-Virginia border, I-77 was closed for hours because of a massive accident, including 95 vehicles. Several died, many were seriously injured, and the reason for the accident is because people just kept driving into the fog. And they paid no attention to the warning. They paid no attention to the caution. They just kept right on driving. Trumpets 1 through 6 are simply saying that's exactly what's happening in the world. Creation is in crisis. Sin and evil is all over the place. And people don't turn. They don't heed the warning call. Yet we ought to wake up and say, God is my only hope. Now, aren't you glad 
that the sermon doesn't end here or that this section doesn't end here. There is a final trumpet, and it's filled with good news. Look at it in chapter 11, which we read at the beginning in verse 15. Here is the end of history. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and began to reign. And the nations raged, but your wrath came in the time of the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants the prophets and saints of those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Everybody wake up. Look right here. Here's the good news of the final trumpet. Things won't always be like this. Really? Things won't always be like this. If anybody's here today and you're tired of the tribulation of life, here's what you need to know. One day tribulation will give over to triumph when the kingdom of God invades the world. You don't just see God's judgment upon the world, but in this final trumpet you see that God's kingdom will rule the world. This is where history is moving. Which, by the way, just a little side note, uh, the ultimate hope of a Christian is not to fly off into heaven where you peel grapes and play harps and wear robes and participate in a never-ending choir practice. No offense if you're in a choir, okay? Okay. But that's often what people think about of heaven. That's not the ultimate hope of a Christian. The ultimate hope of the Christian is that the kingdom of God is going to come down. And your kingdom will be on earth as it is in heaven. That's where history is moving. And notice here four quick things. I'm not even to the main point of my sermon, so none of this time counts, okay? This is all introduction, people. Four things from this that we see at the end of history. Number one, that the kingdom of God is going to be realized. The already not yet will be no more. It'll all be already. It'll be fully realized and everything is going to be placed under King Jesus' feet and we will flourish under His reign. And number two, the people of God will be rewarded. The text says, for the rewarding of your servants, both great and small. That is, believers will be rewarded for their faithfulness. Faith family, how you live now will matter then. Thirdly, the final judgment of God will be received. The nations rage, but the time of the dead to be judged has come. All accounts will be settled, and God will put His enemies down once and for all. And lastly, number four, is the presence of God will not be restrained. You see here in verse 19, the temple is opened. I take this not to be literal, but symbolic. That is, the presence of God will be fully enjoyed, and the promise of Emmanuel God with us will be our reality forever. Amen. What a future. That is, that, look, look, look at me. That's where your life is headed. That's where this train is going. That's real. The good news that's better than the news that Steve Jobs would give you is you don't have to live like death is the end. You can actually live like there's a final trumpet that's going to sound and the kingdom of God will be forever. Yeah. Now, 
I told you that I'm not at my main point. Because I'm not. It's so long. Get to it, buddy. Okay, here we go. I've told you that this is practical, right? That this is relevant to your life. What does all this mean for us? Trumpets 1 through 6, God's judgment upon the world, tribulation. Trumpet 7, where all of this is going, is the kingdom of God is going to rule the world. So what's the practical application for us? Have you noticed that in this section I have skipped some verses? Like all of chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11? Why? Because what happens in a break between the first six trumpets and then the final trumpet is a word for those in John's day and a word for us in our day, and here it is. In the meantime, God's people should be courageous witnesses in the world. If you know that tribulation, trumpets one through six, is going to result in triumph, trumpet seven, then what in hell's name are you afraid of? If you know where this is going, why aren't you living with courage? Why aren't you living with purpose? Why would you ever let failure be the end? Why would that future not impact your now? One person is excited about that, okay? Thank you. Do you see how that's so much better than what Steve Jobs is telling you? Live with courage because you know death's coming. How about live with courage? Because no matter what they do to you now, they can't take life from someone who's going to live forever. In other words, notice this on the screen. If you would frame your life with the reality of triumph, you would live with courage even in tribulation. Now that will preach to suffering Christians. I guarantee you those that receive this letter aren't thinking microchips in the arm and 666 tattoos on the forehead and whether or not that was Gorbachev or whatever, okay? That is nowhere on their radar. What they needed to hear is, you are living in tribulation. That tribulation is moving towards triumph. And in the meantime, don't stop being faithful to what I've called you to do. That'll preach. Now, back it up, big boy. Okay. This gets illustrated in two ways. Number one, with John. John in Revelation 10, is given a scroll to eat. That imagery goes back to Ezekiel. And, and look, look what uh, God says to him. Uh, verse uh, 10 of chapter 10. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And I was told... You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and language and kings. By the way, just a little footnote, this is proof that this can't be talking about the future because God has something for John to say then. It's practical and relevant to John, not 2,000 years later. And of course, the implication for us is the same. God has given us a word. Speak it. Proclaim it. Be His witnesses. 
And I know it's bittersweet. It's sweet because it's the Word of God, but it's bitter because people don't like to hear things like sin and judgment and repentance. But nevertheless, John, you're going to speak these things. I have a calling on your life. Be my faithful witness. After all, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? And the second way this gets illustrated is the two witnesses. We don't have time to read it in chapter 11, but I would encourage you to do so later. I believe these two, repre- uh, two witnesses represent uh, the people of God uh, because they're referred to with the lampstands, which we know is the church from earlier in the book of Revelation. And here's what happens in chapter 11. I'm just going to summarize it. They are giving testimony of their faith. They're giving testimony of uh, the gospel, and they're killed for it. And this is all symbolism. And then everybody gathers around them and rejoices. We are so glad we shut those Christians up. We were tired of hearing that. And then what happens is those two witnesses get up. And the text says, come up here. And they are caught up into the heaven, which is a symbolic picture of resurrection. Here, here... This is such a comforting word to suffering Christians. And this is what God is speaking to them about is this. The worst thing anyone can do to you is give you heaven. You'll get that on your way home, okay? The, seriously, the worst thing people can do to you is give you heaven. They kill you. Well, you're going to live forever. That's the worst that can happen. They cut your head off. And Jesus puts it back on. I ain't kidding. That's actually what was happening in John's day. This isn't hypothetical. The the point of this is simple. If you live like you're going to live, because you're actually going to live forever, then there is nothing to be afraid of, Christian. Live with courage, man. Live with purpose. Don't let failure be the... I don't care if they tell you to shut up. You with grace and love keep proclaiming the Word of God and speaking the truth even in a culture that doesn't want to hear it. And if it costs you your life, guess what? You're going to live. Don't let Rome intimidate you. Don't let American culture intimidate you. If you would just frame your life based on the victory that is yours in Jesus Christ, it would give you a sense of courage and boldness in the present. So go and sow seeds of the gospel everywhere. In living rooms and break rooms and locker rooms and classrooms with courage, with boldness. Because, I hope you're listening, the world cannot kill what has already been promised eternity. The world cannot kill what has already been promised eternity. Frame your life with that. Don't frame it based on the reality of death. That's not good advice, Steve Jobs. Frame it based on the reality of eternity. 
After all, that is exactly what our Savior did. He endured the tribulation of a cross. How? Because according to John, quote, He knew the Father had given all things into His hands. He knew that He had come from the Father and He was going back. Faith family, when you frame your life with the victory of your future, you can persevere with courage the tribulation of your present. And all God's people said, Amen. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this encouraging truth. Thank you for how practical the book of Revelation really is. Everybody here frames their life with something. We live right now based on some belief of the future. And how much more we as Christians who truly believe that there will be a final day when your kingdom reigns. And because we really believe that, even if we're taking it on the chin because of our faith, even if we're being persecuted, even if life is hard and the sufferings that we go through, we can still live with courage and hope because our future frames our present. I I pray, God, that that would encourage the discouraged this morning, that that would build hope for the one who's struggling to find any. And that the reality of what Jesus has promised us would invade our present situation. God, do that by your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.